Good morning, everyone. Pastor's message this morning is taken from the first 13 verses of the book of Mark, and uh, the title is Mark's Prologue, Good News, Good News, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall Prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of his skin around his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey. And preaching, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Gal Galilee and was baptized of John in the Jordan. And straightway coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit draw, driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Amen. If you're familiar with the gospel accounts, you know that all four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus open on a different footing. Matthew's gospel opens on the genealogies and then goes pretty, pretty quickly thereafter into the birth narrative, that which precedes the birth but mostly centers around the birth and the life of Jesus and the fulfillment of Jesus as relating to the Old Testament. Luke begins more so with John the Baptist and the promise that comes to his parents and and, and then it goes from there to the promise given to Mary, and from there on into, we know, the, the famous Christmas narrative of Luke chapter 2 and the birth of Jesus in that regard. And then John, in his gospel, he goes further back. He goes further than the birth. He goes into eternity, telling us who this Logos is, and that he's the eternal son, the eternal Logos, who is with God and was God. He became man, the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity is what we understand when we see that Christ was born into the world from John's perspective. And now Mark, as we come into his gospel, we see very much in consistency with how Mark portrays the life and ministry of Jesus. He gets right to the point. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, this is the beginning, he says. And that's the first point. The gospel of Jesus Christ is where Mark enters the discussion. And he enters it from his words here right from the beginning. 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is some uh, understanding historically that the reason we call the four gospels gospels is because of Mark's introduction right here. The beginning of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it's because of Mark's introduction that we call all four of those accounts of Jesus' life Gospels. The beginning, though, these words are very prominent in some of the most profound aspects and places of Scripture. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. Without God, the Creator, there is no harmony in any of the Scriptures. If you delete God, the Creator, in the beginning, God you delete all of the impact of Scripture. What do you hold about the creation of all things? God is the creator. In the beginning, it was so. And in the beginning was the Word. John 1.1. Something so profound as the pre-existent nature of the Son of God is described in that phrase, the beginning. And so Mark focuses his entire gospel on the beginning of the gospel, he says, of Jesus Christ. He's not referring to his record when he says the gospel here. He's rather referring to gospel regarding announcement of good news. It, it, it regards somebody who is worthy to be announced. What he brings is worthy to be recorded and spoken of. And it regards here, he says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This term, the gospel, is too often undervalued. We often think, well, the gospel just means good news. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But the gospel has truths bound up in it, it that make the proclamation of those truths good news. And so we don't go to sinners and we don't say, believe the gospel and by that mean basically good news. Well, what is the good news, they want to say? We want to tell them the good news. But that content of the gospel, Mark begins to teach us what is the content of good news. And he begins by saying something about a person. The gospel regards a person. Understand that this morning. He says it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus, Yeshua, or Joshua, we would transliterate that, means God is salvation, or the Lord, Yahweh, is salvation. This is the name the angel said, name him this, because he came to save his people from their sin. That's important for the gospel. The name of Jesus and what that represents. A savior that God would send to save, he did send to save his people from their sin. And the, the second word actually here, and this really became sort of an early way to designate this Jesus as distinct from all other Jesuses. Almost like a second name for Jesus, Christ. But the Christ 
means more than just a designation that this Jesus is different. It does mean that. It's appropriate to speak of Jesus Christ as being distinct from all other Jesuses. There are still people that are named Jesus in the world. They are not the Christ. But Jesus means Messiah. It means the anointed, the, the one who is commissioned or ordained by God. And when we see the full idea of Scripture bearing forth the idea of what Christ means and the Messiah means, it means he relates to someone who was promised by God. And if we had time, we could go into the relationship of the promised prophet, the one Moses described in his song, the prophet who would come who would be greater than I am, who the people of Israel look forward to as the Messiah. We could look at his office as the priest. Psalm 110 describes a priest who is God's uh, a representative after the order of Melchizedek, who neither has beginning nor end. And the New Testament says that priest is Jesus. And that priest regards this promised Messiah carrying out that office. And this priest, or this office of Messiah, especially perhaps regards in the mind of the Jewish person who hears this term Christ or Messiah as the king. The king that would come in the lineage of David, and who would sit on the throne of David. Again, Psalm chapter 110, verses 1 and 2, speak to those truths. But for us this morning, we need to see at least this much, that Mark is saying in the introduction to his gospel, this Jesus is the Christ. And they relate to each other. God is salvation, is the Christ, and here he is in a person, Jesus. You see, this is sort of a prologue, and a prologue kind of conveys the whole idea of the message of the entire book. And that's what we're seeing. What does it convey then to us? It conveys a person. Our faith as believers rests in a person. Let me tell you this, and you might hate this distinction. It might drive you crazy. Our belief, our faith not, does not rest in a set of principles or doctrines merely. Those doctrines terminate in a person who lived and breathed and who is and is forevermore, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, doctrines comport with that. They agree with that. But we are not saved by believing a set of principles or theological truths that hang out in the middle of somewhere. No, they are grounded in a person. The Father who gave him and the Lord Jesus Christ who is that person. That's what our faith is grounded on. If God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? And you say, because I believe in the doctrine of the justification by faith. That I'm justified by faith and not by works. Faith in what? Faith in who? Oh, by faith that, you know, something out there will save me. Yeah, that you are good and all of those... No, we're justified by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself. And, and essentially when we're saying we believe the gospel, we are saying we believe in him. He is our righteousness. The only thing that will stand before God now and forever will be those who say, not me, don't judge me because of me, judge me because of him. 
He is righteous. He died for my sin. I only stand because of him. That's what faith does. You see, it's a person who this gospel represents. But there's something else about the good news bound up in this proclamation. The Messiah was promised. Isn't it good news when something that you've been promised comes to pass? Well, that's essential to what Mark has to tell us about Jesus. And we, don't, we lose the awe that we ought to have about this. We lose the awe that God demonstrates regarding his power when we get to things like this. You see, it is amazing news that God's promises in the Old Testament come true for us to see. Think about the odds. I've been told the odds of all the promises concerning Christ that have already come true in the New Testament would be as if you filled the entire state of Texas with pennies or something, some sort of coin, or quarters, and up to your waist, these quarters lie with the whole expanse of Texas. And then he put one silver half dollar in there, which is the same size and diameter, all the stuff of the quarter. I think this is how the analogy works. It's been a long time since I heard it. And you walk around that state of Texas and you reach down there with your eyes closed and you pick up that half dollar. This is the mathematical odds of these prophecies coming true and I without going into all of these prophecies which would not do for your day or mine today this is the odds of them coming true and here is the power of God and we don't see this as good news like we should we don't rejoice like I think Mark's readers in the New Testament are going wait he's the Messiah all those promises came true about the scepter that wouldn't depart from Judah, about the serpent that would get its head crushed by the seed of the woman, and so on and so on and so on. And here's the promised one of Israel here. Be rejoicing this morning. And that's something that we need to see. This, this good news comes within a context of promise and then fulfillment. God's word is true. Are you, are you struggling to believe the word of God because some people say, sarcastically and skeptics say, oh, you're believing a book that's 2,000 years old? You know what you need to tell them? It's a lot older than that. <laughs> and the first half of the book that was promised thousands of years before the second half of the book is fulfilled by the second half of the book. What do you have to say about that? What kind of God is able through all the course of history and all the human beings with all their powers say to all of them, I planned it all so that my word, what I speak, will come to pass. And you tell those skeptics, you should say, if only you knew how old this book was, you might believe it. You might believe how true it is. It's a lot older than 2,000 years and it is true. And Jesus is that final reference, that most important reference of the truthfulness of God's word. And that's good news. He's the fulfillment of God's promises. And the most crucial aspect of probably the hinge of this entire gospel has Peter confessing, you are the Christ, in chapter 8, verse 29. 
And I wonder when you come to this, even this opening title, you're like, wow, we're going to get through 13 verses. We're not getting through 13 verses this morning. But when you come to this title, do you say, Jesus is the Christ? He is the promised one. We just got done with Romans chapter, well, we just got done with Romans. In Romans chapter 1, if you remember it, I tried to come back to it all the time. Here's the good news that Paul was set apart for. The gospel of God, which was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. And Mark is saying, here he is. The promises of God in him, 1 Corinthians 1.20, are all yes. <laughs> Do you need faith this morning? Do you need, you're praying out, I believe, help my unbelief. We'll see this good news this morning. If God gives you ears to hear, hear this good news. We need good news today, don't we? There's not a lot of good news. Well, Christ is the good news, not because he's merely God is salvation, Jesus, not because he's the Christ, but he goes further and he says, the Son of God. You see, this is all components to what we mean by the gospel. No one else in scripture is called the Son of God. Or the only Son of God. Only Jesus is called the Son of God. Now, others are called sons, plural. But there is only one Son. But even here, this also relates to what was foretold in the Old Testament. You see, God said of his people Israel, thus says the Lord, Israel, a plural people, a name that designates a people, is my firstborn son. And Israel is a type, if you will, of Christ. And we know that because the New Testament says so. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. And Matthew chapter 2.15 says that refers to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of that son description of Israel. Now, it's clear that Israel's sonship is in relationship to God as a redeemed covenant people. He says, you are the sons, plural, of the Lord your God in Deuteronomy 4.1. In Romans chapter 9.4, Paul says, to Israel was given the adoption. To them belong the adoption. But Jesus' sonship is neither earned nor graciously given. He is not adopted. It is by virtue of who he is in relationship to the Father we learn that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus' sonship was foreshadowed in God's covenant with Israel in the Old Testament, but is also uniquely fulfilled in himself. You see, Israel was an unfaithful son. So after Hosea says in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son, referring to that redemption out of Egypt that God calls Israel. But here's how he further describes that son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to the idols, to idols. But Jesus always pleased the father. 
He is a unique son in his being, in his existence, in who he is, and also in his conduct. He is a faithful son. He obeys the Father in all aspects of the law and even unto death in the obedience of the cross, fulfilling even the requirements of the law for sin as a sacrifice. When, Math, when Mark says here that Jesus is the Son of God, he is getting to something so deeply profound that the author of the Hebrews can say of him that God says of him, my God. Hebrews 1, 5 through 6 and verse 8, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all angels worship him. Nobody was to worship Israel, and yet this son is to be worshipped. And then in verse 8, but the son of the son, the father says this of the son, your throne, O God. Theos, Elohim, is forever. This is a unique son, and that's why he is good news. If it's just a son who fails, you know, we're children too of God by adoption. In a better covenant, an eternal covenant, not depending on our works, but on Christ. But aren't you thankful for the Son who was faithful in all points? None of us are faithful in all points. All of us continue to sin, who are adopted. But Christ is the Son of God. Do you worship this Son? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That means he has pre preeminence over everyone. The Christ both the fulfillment of the unique quality of the Son of God will be seen throughout the record of Jesus' ministry in Mark. That's one of his intentions. Mark is a theological gospel. It doesn't have as much as the sayings and the teachings as the others do, but it paints the narrative of this Jesus as one who is unique. Messiah. Son. Unique in his role. Well, next we see, and we'll go, I think we'll go quicker more quickly. Verses 2 through 8, the way prepare. And we see again here, first of all, the way. Mark 1, 2, and 3, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. This connects verse 1 to what follows. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Mark is referencing three prophecies, and, and oftentimes we need to understand the way that prophecies work in the Old Testament. You see them opening up a little bit, a little bit more, and a little bit more. There's the one, uh, it, it's been uh, kind of an example that's used often. Prophets, uh, prophecies in the Old Testament are like, you come up to a mountain and you can see over, oh, well, there's another mountain next. And so you come to another prophecy, and you're a little higher. You see a little bit more clearly, and then you come to another one. Oh, that's higher still. So there's three different prophecies that Mark is summarizing here in verses 2 and 3. Malachi 3.1. The first prophecy is actually in Exodus 23, verse 20. I'm not going to recite that, but if you're taking notes, that's the first one. 
Then Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now God is speaking, Yahweh is speaking, and he says he will prepare his way before me. And Isaiah 43 and 5 says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, Yahweh. So God is speaking there in Malachi, prepare the way before me. And now he's speaking, prepare the way of the Lord, Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now the gospel writer says, this is what Isaiah, the prophet, has said. So he's summarizing this prophecy tradition, as it were, with one prophet. That's what he's doing. Because the details are in each one of these prophets, prophecies. But he's singling out the prophet Isaiah, some say, because Isaiah was esteemed as the greatest prophecy of Israel, he did this. I don't know why he's done this, but it's faithful to the biblical account. And he says, prepare the way of the Lord, of Yahweh. And I just want to bring this out, and we'll finish here soon. I want to bring this out as a way that we understand the unique quality of the Son of God. You see, we have, since Arian, the heretic, a whole tradition in history of Christians, not Christians, forgive me, people that claim to be Christians that deny the deity of Christ. Well, when we, t- when we tell people the gospel, should that include that Christ is equal with the Father and equal with the Holy Spirit or not? What should we tell them? And maybe that's not something that you bring up right away. But it is something that must be believed in order to have true saving faith. But what do the scriptures say? Well, the scriptures are saying here, after this description of Jesus Christ, the good news of God, that there's a messenger that God would send. And he, his purpose would be to prepare the way For Yahweh. Now that's important. Because there's a group down the street here that say the name of God is Yahweh or Jehovah. Which is ironic because they use the term Jehovah. We don't know exactly how it's pronounced but they make a big deal about how it's pronounced. The name of God revealed first in Exodus chapter 3. But I want us to see this. Who is the messenger prophesied to prepare the way for? Yahweh. Who does he prepare the way for? And we'll look further into John's fulfillment next week. But who is he preparing the way for? He's preparing the way for Jesus. And so when we see Jesus means the Lord is salvation, when we see he's the fulfillment of the Christ, this promise, which includes the promise that God in his strong arm, Isaiah chapter 52, would be the means of the salvation of his people. God himself would be the savior of his people. And here we see the messenger that is to be sent before the Lord in his coming to his people is sent before Jesus. 
himself. The Son of God. Turn over to John chapter 5. Now, if we're not theologically astute to what we should regard as blasphemy, the Jews in this century certainly were sensitive. If somebody said they were the Lord of the Sabbath, that means that person is the creator God. They understood that. Jesus said that of himself. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus also said of himself, I am the Son of God. Now, the Jews were fairly astute. They say, well, you might say you're one of the sons of God through adoption, covenantally, but you are saying something unique about yourself that if true means that you are making yourself equal with God. And what did they think of that? They didn't think very highly of people that did that. And so we see in John 5, chapter 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, because he's Lord of the Sabbath, they saw that his eating on the Sabbath, his allowing his disciples to eat on the Sabbath, his healing on, his working on the Sabbath, in healing and doing good, my father works till now and I am working. That was worthy of death. That's blasphemy, according to them. But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So one thing that's often brought against the apostles, against these gospel writers, is they're calling Jesus God. Jesus is not claiming that for himself. And I'm telling you, Mark, when he calls Jesus the son of God, and he tells us that this messenger was sent before Yahweh, is implying to us, he's telling us what Jesus claimed for himself. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. The gospel is that God became man and dwelt among us. Only God can save us from our sin. And this gospel, this good news to your ears this morning is that God in fulfillment of his promise to save his people himself sends his son who is Yahweh in the flesh. And that's why if you believe on him, you will have not temporal life, which comes from the value of man, but everlasting life which comes from the value of God himself. That is good news. Do you believe it? Do you believe not in it, but him? Do you exalt in God for this news that is able to save your soul to the uttermost? God's people rejoice in this truth. The world denies this truth. But if you've been a denier of this truth, the Bible says the power is not in you to obey it, but it is in the Spirit, and the Spirit works through the Word. This Word. So I pray that today, we would hear this good news, this proclamation concerning God's only 
Son, that in Him is salvation, if you'll believe on His name.